So it's just like, so are you coming to terms with the fact that you're white? Mm -hmm. Locate yourself there. Sit with that. Sit with it. Sit with it in like, I have lots of feelings about that on a spiritual level about why it's difficult for people to sit with being white. But that's, I think that's a a whole nother podcast. It's a whole nother podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture and issues that concern Black women through the lens of Black feminist anthropology. My name's Alyssa, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Hi, I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, and her pronouns as well. We're back for our second semester, and today we're keeping it real topical, and we'll be discussing Danny Lee, what's going on with Latina Dodd, And also, maybe just a little bit of racialization, maybe just a little sprinkle of it with a guest. And before we get started, we want to wish a very big thank you to Mayada, my aunt Lachelle, Bethany, Olivia, Leo, Zakia, hey girl, Jennifer, Sophie, hey, Tina, hey, (laughs) Melissa, hey, we'll see you later, Akshay, Cindy, and Pasama for donating to the podcast. We really appreciate y'all engaging with and supporting us during our winter break. And your support helps us recognize how valuable our voices are. And another thank you to everyone who attended our end of the semester discussion section in December. I hope it was as fun for you all as it was for us. It was just such a great energy. And I think I speak for both of us when I say that we left feeling inspired and excited to keep doing this. Yes, it was it was lit, y'all. If you missed out, you missed out. But Mm -hmm. there'll be some more events this semester. We produced a playlist from that discussion section, which we did on Spotify. And it's called ZD 2020, in case you want to listen with us. And to keep up with our events and other episodes, you can follow us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. And you can also support the podcast through direct donations via PayPal or by buying some of our fire t-shirts and hoodies available on our website, zorasdaughters.com. Speaking of merch, if there's something that you all want, just let us know. The hoodie was actually a special request because, and I quote, a bitch don't wear (laughs) (laughs) t-shirts. In any case, Brendan, how is it going? What's new? It's been a while. Also, happy Black History Month. (laughs) Well, you know... You say that, and it makes me think of that saying, it's like, it's Black 365 over here or something. I don't know. I heard that somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was on a McDonald's commercial. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's going good. I really, I really can't complain. I rested over the break and took time to mind my own business, which is the motto for 2021 and beyond. And I'm so excited to be on the mic again. I really miss this. I miss talking to you, talking to y'all. I didn't see my family over the break at all. Um, But the many calls that I get from my grandmother twice a week, almost daily, indicate that they really miss me. So I got to make a trip to see them soon. Alyssa, girl, you were up to some big things over the break, though. Like, how are you doing and how are things going? Yeah, a lot, a lot went down. But I... You know, I'm excited to be on the mic again with you. I definitely miss this as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you'll get to see your, 
your fam jam soon. I went home to Toronto. I hadn't been home, hadn't seen my family and friends in over a year. And I managed to smuggle Bay in on a little, on just like a little Gilead run. <laughs> so he got to visit Canada for the first time. And y'all, don't worry, we did our quarantine, our full quarantine on both sides. I was tested on both sides of the border. And so I just know that people have been separated from their family and partners for a long time. So I felt just incredibly fortunate um, that it all came together and that I, yeah. I got able, that I was able to do that. I also moved into a new apartment. And so we have no furniture in the living room pretty much, but it's a very exciting development. Yes. These new apartment, uh, from the pictures I saw, it's very cute. I, um, <laughs> I love it. Can't wait to see the living room when everything's all said and done and when things are all said and done. But let's get into it. Girl, what's the word for today? The word for today is racialization. So... I would say that in the social sciences, it's pretty well accepted that race is a discourse. What that means is even though it has real effects, race has real effects on people, it, has been, it is something that has been created through centuries of scientific and social ideologies. But the literature has kind of looked away from looking at race as a static category of identity, i.e. identity politics and membership and belonging and kind of more theorizes the process by which certain groups of people come to be designated as a race or as other. And so to put it simply, racialization is the process of manufacturing a racial category or giving someone or something a racial character. Right. So the foundation of racialization is ascription, which is essentially the imposition of difference. You think about it happening upon bodies, so the imposition of difference upon the body of another person or another being. And it's made possible by inequalities of power and position. So one common misconception is that only people of color are racialized, but actually all bodies are, right? So like, how else do you know who's white and who's not? Racialization allows for the inequitable distribution of power and resources by saying people with a certain set of characteristics can have power, while other categories of people cannot. These characteristics then become essentialized, which I understand to mean they become assumed to be the essence of a particular person or group of people. And usually this happens through biological processes. So because these people's genes say that they are X, Y, and Z, they have these characteristics. And anthropologists played and continue to play an integral role into how people are racialized. This discipline <laughs> invented the racial categories that we use today. Right. I think there was a new book that came out. It's called Gods of the Upper Air. Um, and they discussed that. And then there was an episode of a podcast called Through Line. And they talked about this as well. And I was like, there was, they, they talked about how anthropologists uh, were involved in the creation of race, in the, in the production of race in, in the United States. And there were definitely some absences. And I was like, ah, OK, I think Brendan and I might have to pick up on, mm. on you know, where they, where they missed out, where they left off, and, and really go deeper into that. I think it would be an interesting episode. Yes. But in any case, I found that scholars, they tend to turn to France Fanon's chapter, The Lived Experience of the Black Man, which is also translated as The Fact of Blackness in his text, Black Skin, White Masks. And they use that text to make sense of how one is racialized. So in the opening lines of that chapter, he's interpolated by a white child who says, look, a Negro. But before I keep going, what is interpolation? Oh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm going to try. 
I'm going to try. I'm going to do that as quickly as I can. So interpolation is associated with the work of French philosopher Louis Althusser. And he talks about the way that individuals are hailed or called into an identity. So if I yell out, hey, you, and a person turns around, they're recognizing themselves as the subject of that phrase, the you. So for Althusser, ideologies, they do the same thing. They hail or call to people and offer a particular identity, which is then accepted by that person, by the subject, as natural or obvious. So interpolation is the process by which our roles and identities are encountered and then internalized through social interactions. Right. So gender is also another example of the way that we're interpolated before we're even born. Parents will say, oh, I'm having a girl, refer to the baby as she. And we are called to embody these expectations of what we're being held as. And as a brief aside, right, these gender reveal parties that some of y'all have seen or maybe, you know, attended are actually literally destroying the earth, right? But they're also a part of a conservative response to the increased visibility of trans people by reinforcing gender binaries and patriarchy. So this mode of interpolation, which calls your fetus either a boy or a girl, reinforces anti-Blackness, massage noir, queer phobia, and transphobia by inscribing societal norms onto a fetus. But I'm gonna say that and then I'm gonna get off my soapbox, right? Racialization tends to impact other forms of interpolation, such as gender, right? So what does it mean to be called a Black woman or a Black man? And if you're interested to learn more about about that specific interaction between racialization, Blackness, and gender, Hortense Spillers, Sadia Hartman, Christina Sharp, Zakia Iman Jackson, C. Riley Snorton, and Patrice, Patrice Douglas are just a few of the Black theorists who think explicitly about racialization, Blackness, and gender. Thank you. That's a mini syllabus right there. <laughs> but okay, so back to Fanon, or Fanon, some people say. I heard somebody call him Fanon the other day. And Fanon, I... not Fanon. No, it's French, <laughs> so I say Fanon, because um, I like to be extra. <laughs> So when this child says, look, a Negro, Fanon is called into inhabiting the stories, the histories, the anecdotes of Blackness. And so racialization is always about these social, re social relations and particularly a relation of power. So one party is always in the position to ascribe racial characteristics and then create a hierarchy of those characteristics. And so what's important to note, and Brennan kind of alluded to this already, is that in the process of hailing, two subjects are produced. As Fanon writes, he becomes black in relation to the white man. So two subjects are produced, one is the black, one is the white. And so in this analytic, white people are racialized too, but that racialization is made invisible or given less meaning or pretty much no meaning at all, right? Whiteness has pretty much remained unmarked until recently where white people are now being pushed to recognize the qualities that cohere them as a group, you know, like colonialism, mm -hmm. settlerism, mm -hmm. privilege, fragility, mm -hmm. not using a washcloth in the shower. They seem to do, <laughs> look, <laughs> I did not know that 2020 was going to produce that as one of the characteristics of whiteness, uh, to be real. <laughs> um, <laughs> but racialization, as you've hinted at, Alyssa is also fluid and mutable. So one group of people might be racialized in a particular time or even a particular space like the city or the country, 
but then are absorbed into whiteness into other and also in other categories. Let's put a little asterisk on that. Just remember that, okay? In a particular space, people can be absorbed into whiteness or they can try to refuse whiteness. In some spaces, they might be white. In other spaces, they might not be white. Let's just remember that for when we're talking later. Yes, put a bookmark on it. Mm-hmm. And then also, if you want to learn more about it, we talked about it last season, actually, when we talked about the Irish and the Jews who were not always read as white, but as whiteness evolved throughout the 19th and 20th century as a result of the worldwide emancipation of enslaved Black people, right, they began to be incorporated into whiteness. And in the early 20th century, the racial categories used in the U.S. were much more diverse than they are today. So I was looking at ancestral records because I was trying to find out more about my, my family's past. And my grandmother on my father's side was actually entered into the Louisiana census as a mulatto. Whereas now, if we think about racial categories now, she would be entered as Black. A more recent example of the process of racialization can also be seen through the U.S. response to September 11th. The post 9-11 um, racialization of Muslims was used so that people could identify, quote unquote, who was Muslim and then vilify them. And because of that, many people were attacked. Mm, that's such a good example. So it's, of course, important to note that racialization isn't just an ideological process in the same way that racism for racialized people isn't just an abstraction that we have to read about to understand. Racialization is material, so a group can be racialized through media coverage, which is pretty much what we saw uh, post 9-11. Period. And it can also be through the way that people interact with them or don't interact with them. So through the lens of racialization, the work is making these relations explicit. So breaking apart these ideas and practices from their assumed biological or essential nature. Mm. But if you forget everything that we just said, just remember that racialization is the process through which a group is designated as other, which is a nice little segue into what we're reading today. So, Brendan, what are we reading? We are reading Becoming American, Becoming Black, Urban Competency, Racialized Spaces, and the Politics of Citizenship Among Brazilian and Puerto Rican Youth in Newark by Ana Y. Ramos Zayas. Ana Y. Ramos Zayas is is a professor of ethnicity, race, and migration, and professor of American studies and anthropology at Yale University. She received her PhD in anthropology from Columbia, and her work aims to understand and disentangle systems of power and privilege at a variety of scales. Her most recent book, published in 2020 by Duke University Press, Parenting Empires, Class, Whiteness, and the Moral Economy of Privilege in Latin America, examines the parenting practices of the Brazilian and Puerto Rican upper classes as these alter urban landscapes, provide moral justifications for segregation, surveillance, and foreign interventions, and recast idioms of crisis, corruption, and austerity, according to the dictums of U.S. empire. I guess we should begin with the obvious elephant in the room. For the first time on ZDP, we are discussing work that is not by a Black person, but we felt like it was important for us to discuss racialization through her lens because of what's going on in the world. Absolutely. So this episode is very current event driven, so much so that we switched up what we were planning on talking about today at the last minute. But it's a topic that we've been wanting to discuss for some time. And the conversations that blew up around Danny Lee offered the perfect entry point. So 
that topic is the interplay of Blackness and Latinx identity. And so we chose this article to help us and you all understand the slippage, obfuscation, and even erasure that happens when Blackness is analyzed as an identity that can be appropriated and performed rather than understood as a lived experience and embodied reality. So Ramos Zayas bases her article, which was published in 2007, on her fieldwork in North Newark, New Jersey. She observes two high schools in two different neighborhoods in Newark and interviews Latin American migrants and U.S.-born Latinos, and that's her word, and analyzes how they understand belongingness, which at times seems to mean citizenship and at other times it fits into this particular urban environment that she describes. These young people move in and out of Blackness in order to create what she terms as an alternative mode of citizenship, but they often do not support the civil rights struggles of Black people. So these students act Black in the hallways and around their friends as a form of urban competency, which she defines as the always shifting implicit social knowledge and cultural capital associated with being, quote, urban and cosmopolitan. In these particular schools, quote, blackness circulates as an easily accessible Americanness through, quote, Puerto Ricanness. And this might sound confusing, but we're going to unpack it. <laughs> so these students who were not black or Puerto Rican, and honey, um, you can be both, but we'll get to that later as well, could access urban competency by, quote, becoming Puerto Rican, which was actually becoming black without actually being black. What? <laughs> like, it's, again, it's, and we'll get to that as we unpack this, the the framework kind of escapes logic. But um, yeah, so like, you have this blackness, this urban competency, and social capital that's circulated among these non-black students, along with anti-black sentiments about black people. So the actual black students would still be criminalized and read as the bad kind of ghetto, which is a type of affect and a set of behaviors that existed in excess of this fabulated Puerto Ricanness. In contrast to these, the Puerto Ricans, there were Brazilian students who lived in the Ironbound neighborhood, which was mostly Portuguese, and who were often read as urban, but a different type of urban, not a black type of urban, and, amb- and racially ambiguous. So Ramos Zayas uses this milieu, right, to ask if the embodiment of urban competency and a type of mediated blackness helps us to un- upend this black-white binary, these racial hierarchies, and allows for immigrants to lay claims to citizenship outside of nativist logics that inscribe them as, quote, illegal. It was interesting. So I just wanted to explain social capital, social and cultural capital quickly. And so in this context, it comes from Pierre Bourdieu. He's a white French sociologist and anthropologist, and he defines three types of capital, economic capital, aka money and financial assets. And then there's cultural capital, which are social assets. I know that's confusing. Social assets like education, style of speech, knowledge of particular subjects, like art, we'll say. So for example, knowing the right forks to use was something that was said about VP Kamala Harris, and that is a form of cultural cultural capital. And then there's social capital, aka your human resources and your standing in society. So that can be things like networks of friends, the old boys network, or your social class. And so all of these contribute 
to the reproduction of inequality in society because while economic capital can be gained and maybe not to the level of wealth, but you can gain economic capital. I mean, we can think about a celebrity, for example, but cultural and social capital, they're harder to come by without being conditioned into it over a lifetime. So I've always found it really interesting. As an example, Brendan and I, our university degrees might give us cultural and even some social capital. I could even go to a Swiss finishing school. And I don't even know what that is. So. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a finishing school for, uh, in Switzerland for people who weren't like raised in wealth. And they basically learn how to develop the like mannerisms and conversation styles and style of dress of like wealthy people so that they can like mix in these circles. Oh. I read about it. I read about it in, uh, I think, The New Yorker or something. So oh. name dropping, dropping The New Yorker is an example of cultural capital. Mm. Um, so regardless of those things, I would always be recognized as an outsider or an imposter and not just because I'm visibly black. I'm black, I'm black. Do you remember that meme? <laughs> <laughs> and not just because of that, but it might be because of a mannerism or because of the way I dress or the way that I speak. And so it would take a lot of work for me to be accepted or recognized as legible in like the upper echelons of mm -hmm. our very stratified, very stratified society. It's fascinating and it's bullshit. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I noted in the essay was the heavy use of scare quotes. You know, those yeah. quotation marks that demonstrate that a word isn't being used in its most standard way. Yeah. Everything. So like, everything. It was quote unquote race, quote unquote urban competency, quote unquote the citizen, quote unquote the urban, quote unquote acting black. And I just found it really frustrating because it was almost as though she was refusing to be definitive. And what I think the use of those scare quotes tells me is that her analytical framework was inadequate for the kind of work she was trying to do. Yeah. And especially if we think about what she says this article is supposed to be thinking through, right? Which is how these young people access alternative modes of citizenship. It's like all the things she was saying because of the square coast was slipping away from her. And I know that this article was written in 2007. So maybe she didn't have access to certain writings and black studies to help her flesh out this performance of blackness that she was square quoting around. You're being generous. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm trying to be Scenes, very scenes of Subjection came out in 1997. <laughs> and, and this is the anthropological problem, right? And anthropology likes to pretend like Black studies or any other type of studies don't exist. That would actually help you streamline these arguments and make sense of things. And so what I was also, was puzzling to me was just like, girl, did you even talk to any Black students while you wrote this? Like, and her, like, deliberate refusal to refer to people by skin color. So she, she chooses to mobilize either national or ethnic identity as race to refer to students. So she would refer to students as Puerto Rican or El Salvadorian or Brazilian um, or U.S.-born Latino. But why this also made me confused was because in all of these places, in each of these countries that she's referring to, there are actual factual black people. Actual factual. Actual factual black people. And the black, though, in this article remains as a reference, almost like a ghost, almost like haunts this article. And she grounds Newark as the city that has been abandoned by white people during the 80s. And so then they, they bring in all of these Puerto Ricans to help replace some of the workforce. But 
what that means is that these Puerto Ricans are coming to a place where there are already black people, but she doesn't really say that, right? It's like kind of mm. like, kind of elides, elides that. So when we're thinking about urban competency in a place that is essentially full of black people, that's really just appropriated blackness, right? How do you move through a black space? You gotta, apparently you gotta appropriate blackness. Um, <laughs> and also it's clear that the students that she interviews are not black because then they wouldn't have to do the work of trying to become black. Mm. And so for the students who are already black, so maybe they're Puerto Rican, but also a black Puerto Rican, right? Their embodied blackness precludes them from this kind of urban competency, even though blackness is what constitutes it. Mm. Yes, that is a read between the lines right there. So there's a phrase she writes, quote, for many young Latin American migrants and United States born Latinos, quote, becoming American was not equated with becoming white, as has been the case for other mainly European migrants, but rather with becoming Black. This appreciation and appropriation of Blackness generally failed to engage discussions of civil rights, segregation, and inequality, or lead to enduring coalitions with African Americans in Newark. So in this essay, Puerto Ricans as a group are considered closest to Black, but what what does that even mean when there are Black Puerto Ricans, as like, you just said? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. So this question, it just remained for me because she's treating the categories of Brazilian and Puerto Rican as racial formations. And she writes, you know, it's not because of physical characteristics we typically associate with race, but because of social relations. So remember, groups can be racialized. But so it's these social relations of subordination, imperialism, and inequality in the context of white supremacy that produce Brazilians and Puerto Ricans as racialized. And so I think that you are pointing to one of these slippages between urban competency and acting black or ghetto and all of those also in scare quotes. There very there may very well be black immigrant students who don't act black or ghetto or don't have urban competency who are then outside of her analytic. So they're black but they don't become her stereotyped ideas of what encompasses blackness, which indicates to me that there's a problem with her definition and analytic of blackness itself. And in fact, she kind of mentions briefly, there was a black Brazilian student who was not seen as black by his peers because he dressed quote unquote well, and he worked hard in class. And so we come back to this kind of anti-black trope that niggas can't be nerds. Blurred. Uh, <laughs> can't be blurred, can't be nerds. And she kind of slides past that. Um, she mentions it and keeps it moving. And so another thing that I thought was confusing about this analytic and mobilization of quote, quote, blackness, right, is that I'm thinking about these black studies works that at the time were really questioning whether citizenship um, was even a way you could describe how black people live in the United States. And so she talks about students mobilizing performances of blackness to articulate modes of belonging and citizenship. And this appropriation, I know she calls it appreciation, but I, I did not see that there. Um, mm -hmm. This appropriation like, is rooted in anti-blackness and the mode of citizenship and belonging was the use of black style talk, black idioms, black dress in a way that was not appreciation because these students still wanted to be seen as separate from black people hence even labeling themselves as puerto rican like the label and the use and the mobilization of this label puerto rican to distinguish themselves from black and and keep in mind that that was not 
Puerto Rican saying I'm Puerto Rican. Of course, Puerto Ricans are Puerto Ricans. But there, I think there was an Iranian student. Mm-hmm. Um, and where's the other student? What were her origins? I can't remember. There, But there was an Iranian student who was like, oh, yeah, I have Puerto Rican friends. And I'm happy when people mistake me for Puerto Rican. I'm not speaking about people who are Puerto Rican, who identify as Puerto Rican. I'm talking about people who identify as Puerto Rican alongside people who are not Puerto Rican, who also identify as Puerto Rican. And for me, that whole dynamic rings of the same old, same old shit where Blackness becomes fungible, but Ramos Zayas does not name Blackness as such, right? It, it, she says it's fungible, but doesn't really name it as such and like actually give name to what's happening here. And so for me, I don't think it's the becoming black that enabled alternative modes of citizenship because, you know, what is national citizenship to the black who's always consistently denied rights and protections. And for me, I'm, I'm also thinking about that Haitian young man. I don't know if you saw it in the news who no. he, he and his brother were detained and they both had citizenship papers. They were both, but he was deported and he was deported to Mexico. He wasn't even deported to Haiti. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So thinking about that, right. So like what is citizenship to, to a black person in the U S but actually what is the alternative mode of citizenship for non-black people who use this urban competency, right. It's the act of instrumentalizing elements of blackness. So I don't read it necessarily as becoming black, but actually practicing whiteness and a reinforcement of white supremacist logic that allowed them to have alternative modes of citizenship. 100%. I, I wrote that in my notes. So Ramos Dias has a quote from a white Cuban teacher who says that for students, whiteness is associated with being Portuguese and Portuguese, it means backwards, um, according to these students. That's interesting. <laughs> in order to access <laughs> social capital and belonging, they appropriate this blackness. And I was like, that's an incredibly white move. I think we see it all the time on the internets now with all mm-hmm. of the digital blackface. And so I was like, if you have to appropriate or perform it, then you're not, then you're not it. So this line was key for me from, from the article. Puerto Ricans embodied a racial flexibility that provided a broader ground for inclusion into an urban culture imagined to be the domain of African-Americans in the United States. Likewise, many Latin American migrant students viewed Puerto Ricans as ambiguously black, and they appropriated that ambiguity to claim a space in an otherwise imporous blackness projected onto the bodies of African-Americans. This is key. This is key to the erasure of black people from Latinidad. This is key to people like Jessica Krug claiming Afro-Latinx identity and then Mm -hmm. taking up space in rooms that were not for her. Ooh, child. By making blackness something that, and this is a quote from the article, that can be detached from black bodies. We allow people to move in and out of blackness as it suits them. And it just strikes me as something that is it just strikes me as incredibly privileged to be able to perform blackness and then have it be considered an aberration. And that's a quote from the article as well, which is the opposite of what it's seen as for black people for whom blackness is essentialized and criminalized. Right. And you know, like part of me was like, I know these kids not going home around their parents and acting like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And I, since I've taught high school, I, I know that to be the case. Like, y'all not going home acting like that around your parents. So it's, it's mm. really this site of the school and maybe possibly the streets, depending on what these kids were doing, where they get to embody, embody, quote unquote, blackness, quote unquote. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, just to put quotes around everything and it doesn't really mean what it means. Um, <laughs> but I also was reading between the lines that there is a certain type of pleasure that comes from the appropriation that gets sifted out of the conversation. So a lot of people talk about power and, you know, there's power in cosplaying black, there's power in, in digital blackface, there's power in, you know, performing blackness. But it's not just about the power and for me playing white through playing black, there's a pleasure in like actually putting blackness on. And I won't say much more about this until we get to the Afro-pessimism episode, wink, wink. Uh, but wink, I did wink wanna, nod, nod. Wink, wink, nod, nod, we heard you. Um, <laughs> but I did want to flag that here. Quote, acting Black allows these students, and really honestly, I would say society at large, to express certain emotions and sometimes inhabit freer ways of being. So acting white is seen as boring and not cool or studious or whatever, but also allows for you to exercise power over Black people. So overall, I just really hope that we and we, meaning scholars, have moved away from this language of acting Black and just call it what it is, digital Blackface, appropriation, all of that. So I think this is a really nice transition to our next segment, What in the World? Like, what? What? And in the world, what's going on? So our What in the World segment is where we discuss current events that we hopefully have set up and contextualized with our previous conversations. And it's basically where we get messy, but with a critical eye. So in order to help us with our discussion today, we're joined by Daisy E. Guzman. Daisy is a PhD student in African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. She was born in the Bronx, New York, and is one of the few Garifuna Guatemalan women in academia. Her current work and dissertation analyzes the performativity of Garifuna indigeneity in the South Bronx and its relationship to Garifuna women's memory keeping, storytelling, and embodied practices. Her work suggests that displacement and migration, rather than fixity and rootedness, define Garifuna people as Indigenous and Black within the discourse of Black diaspora and geography. Welcome to the Zoom studio today, Daisy. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Yes. I'm excited. So y'all, Daisy, y'all can't see Daisy, but she is looking real resplendent, got the Thank hair you. out. Beautiful smile. And so we're just so happy that you were able to bear with all of our last minuteness um, and be with us today. But before we get into the mess, um, I just wanted to ask you a few questions about your work. And you examine memory keeping practices among Gardifuna women in the South Bronx. And so I was wondering, like, what are some of the ways that these women keep memory, right? What are these ways that they keep memories of displacement or violence or love and family? Could you explain a little bit more? So the way I engage Garifuna women is through my family ties as my entire family moved from Guatemala to the South Bronx in the 70s during the um, Guatemalan Civil War. So when we hear about the civil wars in Central America and the banana plantations 
in Central America um, from Nicaragua to Panama, Guatemala, Honduras, and Belize. It sounds like the Civil War was very indigenous and the banana plantation was very black, but they were happening simultaneously. So when we mm. think about um, Garifuna people migrating to the United States, it becomes a discourse of hemispheric blackness. So we have to see how black is navigated in Central America and then in the United States. So then you get the discourse of anti-blackness, but two different types of political approaches to it. So when I discuss um, black women migrating, then we add that layer of gender mm. and we add that layer of gender geographies, right? Because when black women migrate, we get into the Catherine McKentrick conversation of mm -hmm. women marking land and we get into a conversation of flesh memory and how do we keep um, the familial ties going across lands and what does then become a Garifuna American culture. So the women in the South Bronx, the way they navigate through parties through social gatherings, through food, dancing, music, cultural events that mirrors what they used to do and what they still do in Central America. So now we have Settlement Day, we have um, Guatemalan or Central American Independence Day, and we have all the um, known Garifuna holidays celebrated in New York as it is celebrated in Guatemala, but in give different contexts because of the different geographies and because of the difference between the small town and, and the coast of Central America and the urban space in New York City. Mm. Yeah, that sounds really, it sounds really interesting. I think about memory and I think what is interesting about, if we're thinking along the lines of gender, mm -hmm. right? People who are positioned as women or who claim like that's that gender are typically the memory keepers, yes. right? Like we are usually the ones who carry um, in the same ways that if you are able, right, you carry children, typically women carry these memories. And so I think it's, I think what you're saying, laying it out for us is as a geographical, in addition to a racial and also a gendered way of our lens of thinking about these things, I think was really, really cool to see um, and impactful. And leads me to my next question and thinking about, because you have these different lenses that you're using, um, what are the implications of your work, particularly for Black and Indigenous studies? It used to um, confuse people when I was in the Spanish department and I was doing a real Black project. And it's not until you read more in grad school that you realize how Black the project really is, mm -hmm. right? Because we can't just say is an Indigenous project, is a Black project, is a Central American project, is a very interdisciplinary project. Because I am talking about geography, I am talking about race, I am talking about culture, and all of these things are not separate from one another, is happening simultaneously, right? So when we think about Afro-Indigeneity, Afro-Latinidad, Central American, and then we get what happens when the Central American then gets a U.S. passport, mm -hmm. right? And we have to be all these things at one time. It then becomes a very black interdisciplinary project because we can't talk about black women without citing black women. It right. just doesn't make sense. 
Well, I mean, there's plenty of people who do it, but it don't. You write about it, not make mm-hmm. it sense. There are plenty of people who do it, but then they project don't have the seasoning that it needs. And that is what we learned today when the, <laughs> with what we learned, with what we read. <laughs> with what we read. <laughs> it was like, oh, this does not, I see what you're doing here, but it doesn't really hold or make sense. In reading your bio, I was like, wow, like, yes, thinking about blackness, thinking about displacement and migration rather than this idea of fixity and rootedness and like blackness being about this violent, um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, violent displacement, right? And so how yeah. how can we draw these connections and also another just realm of thinking about your work and like you're saying, your, your call to your work, which is about you, which is about your family, it's also a call to kind of deconstruct what we think yeah. about these different types of studies. Because one question that I think gets left out is what happens when we think of blackness as already indigenous, not blackness, not black and indigenous or black or indigenous, but black as indigenous. Mm -hmm. Right. Because Garifuna people, Taino people, we were all here before the colonization happened. Right. Although we do live in the afterlife of slavery, we do have a culture and a history that predates the impact of European colonization. Mm -hmm. So when we think of blackness as indigenous and we think of the movement of Africans before the violence of colonization, there's a certain history that's being left out in order Mm -hmm. to highlight and unpack another type of history all right well thank you for that but we are now going to get into the mess (laughs) so this episode was prompted by the 26 year old singer danny lee who identifies as dominican Mm -hmm. so she recorded a song called yellow bone and so for those of you who might not be familiar with this term it's generally like a southern term right yeah so I'm from South Carolina, for those of you who don't know. And when we talk about yellow bone versus red bone, um, and sometimes people use these terms interchangeably, but they're not actually not interchangeable. Usually it refers to lighter skinned women who have different undertones. And it's thought that people who are red bones, right, might have indigenous ancestry, hence the red. And I was wondering if, I know there are different racial categories in Latin America or Central America, but are there equivalent kind of terms for people who might be the same race but have different tones? That's a whole nother podcast, to be quite honest, because there's a whole cascade system, even though they want they want to eliminate it. They want to say we are all out here. There's still Mesti Sahe. There's still people that try to sugarcoat or rather reclaim la raza cosmica mm-hmm. or the cosmic race. Right. And we have that we are all the same in the multiculturalism, mm-hmm. but it doesn't change that the underbelly of mestizaje and Latinidad is anti-blackness. Right. Yes. So the more they try to be semi-inclusive, the more they try to eliminate the blackness that constructed the foundation of their country. Right. So it then looks like, oh, we arrived because of slavery. We arrived because the Panama Canal. We arrived because of the banana plantation, but most of us were here before y'all even became a country. Mm-hmm. Y'all arrived. <laughs> Basically, so when we say um, race in Central America, race in Latin America is literally how race is constructed in each section because we have to get into la leyes de las Indias 
on how race was broken down into 16 plus categories from Mexico down all the way to South America. So is there a yellow bone? Is there a red bone? There could be, but it's just like you are morena. Mm. Mm. You are mulata and then it becomes layered and then it just becomes like a racial science, Mm. Mm -hmm. right? That's very particular. I remember studying in Spanish class in high school because we learn morena, you learn mulata. And then you mm-hmm. learn, you know, Spanish class, they put the pictures up and they no. put the words next to it. And you're just kind of like, no, they don't. Yeah, I, grew, I grew up in yes, South they Carolina. Do. You have the Creole, well, Criollo, the Mulata, the Mestizo, Mestiza. And then you have the Morena. And then you have Negro. And then you have La Blanca. And you have all of these layers. And that's just a few out of all the different combinations you can make. And I don't want to like, cite this man but i'm gonna cite him henry Louis gates and his documentary about latin america when he goes to mexico and they show you that the museum still has that whole breakdown of the cascade system so if people ever want to like see what that means it does exist still around but it has just become subtle under multiculturalism but it's blatantly practiced yeah i think in the french in the french colonies it was literally codified so all of the it was it was also kind of a racial mathematics um some of which are still in use today particularly in martinique and in haiti but yes i knew we were gonna do this (laughs) i knew we were gonna start going all the way all the way around but let's just explain to folks what happened with Danny Lee. She's a singer. So she released a song, Yellow Bone, which now you guys know what the, what the background of that term is. But it's reportedly a diss track to DaBaby's ex, who is darker skinned. And oh the lyrics are essentially, yellow bone is what he wants. Uh, and since I'm not up on the shade room stuff, I actually only found out about it through Mayoa's world. They're an Instagram educator I want to say that's probably not how they refer to themselves but that's what I'm gonna say and so Mayawa shows us Danny Lee's very white parents superimposed with her lyrics from her song Craven in which she says nigga and Mayawa points out that this isn't new Fat Joe who is white he says nigga in all of his songs too and he defends it because he's Latino Jennifer Lopez has called herself a negrita del Bronx oh my god I imagine that word has a very different connotation and translation than just a black girl from the Bronx. I think it has a different connotation. Um, Rita Ora and Camila Cabello, Cabello, baby blackfish in two. So I just want to ask the question, does being Latinx, which is now a contested term, does it in and of itself make you black? No. (laughs) Period. (laughs) No, no, it doesn't. I was like, I don't, I remember that interview with JLo and I don't know where she got that from because I was like, even early JLo, I was like, no one, no one thought of you as black man. Yeah. Very talented. We're not going to knock that. You are a talented Puerto Rican woman, but you are not black. Mm -hmm. And like, even if she... Even if she were, let's say J-Lo had a black parent, looking at her, no one would even, because of her hair, because of her skin, right? Because of the shape of her body, negrita is not the word you would use Mm -hmm. for her. So even if you did have a black parent, like you're not negrita. So it's, yeah, it's obvious that 
I don't know what type of world she was trying to call herself into. Maybe <laughs> she's a negrita because she's constantly stealing black women's voices and using Luke. them on her tracks. Mm. But <laughs> it's not like it's not that. Like you know, no. I mm-hmm. I feel like what you've <laughs> opened up there is is a space to really question what is black, as one of our professors might ask, right? So Cardi B. <laughs> posted all of these pictures of her family because she's also Dominican and she was getting dragged into this conversation with Danny Lee. You're not ready to have this conversation about Cardi B not actually being Black. This is what people are saying on on the internet. And so it's like, does having a Black grandmother make you Black? Do we need to be policing the boundaries of Blackness? And in my opinion, I'm going to say yes, because like the glorification of light skin as ideal Black beauty, it's harming us when literal white people like Danny Lee, J-Lo, Jessica Krug, Rachel Dolezal can move in and out of blackness as they please with, with box braids and laid bangs and a spray tan. So I think it's interesting. We're seeing, you know, people move towards saying blackness is a phenotype, but it's not biological. So it's not necessarily based on your ancestry, but it's literally how you walk through the world. And Danny Lee doesn't walk through the world as a black woman. And so too many times, and I, I hope you're able to speak on this, Daisy, but you know, a lot of the times we hear folks saying, I'm not white, I'm white passing. Black people are racialized as black everywhere, targeted with violence and surveillance everywhere, subject to genocide in Latin America, historically through the blanqueamiento, and currently mm-hmm. through state-sanctioned violence. So mm-hmm. how can you, with your blonde hair and blue eyes, move to the U.S. and suddenly start calling yourself white passing. Like, I'm crying. I'm crying you're white. <laughs> I honestly cannot speak to that because I was like the white, white passing is just, I don't know what to say to that besides where you white passing where you came from yep. or where you just white right. where you were and you're still white when you get here Mm -hmm. and it's usually those people that become people of color and that's where Mm. things get fickle Mm -hmm. right so in thinking of this girl's song yellow bone I was like that's not even your history that's not even your language you not a yellow bone because that's not your culture that's not that's not who you are and that's not how you was even raised right Megan, Megan the Stallion has a lyric where she calls herself, she says, real bad bitch with a little red bone or something. And it's like, Megan's from Texas. She has been called the red bone. And then it's just like, when you think of Megan, even Megan the Stallion, where the stallion come from is her build, is her height, mm-hmm. right? There's a whole deep history in these names that homegirl is not a part of. Mm-hmm. Right. To be calling herself a yellow bone. That in itself was already insulting before we even get to the context of why she made the song in the first place, which is not even colorism. It's just pure anti-blackness. You made the song because his ex is a dark skinned woman. And now you stepped into the picture and now you have your chocolate man. (laughs) And you feel insecure. Insecure. You need to prove something. Right. So it's just... When people say like, oh, this person is Dominican, there are black people in the Dominican Republic, Mm -hmm. like Dominican Haiti is one island, Mm -hmm. right? They can try to say the majority of the black people are Haitian, but no, no, it's, it it flows. Mm -hmm. There is no real border. Borders are 
a figment of colonizers' imagination, mm. it is one island, right? There are simultaneous blackness across the board. So when we think of Dominican, we have to then separate there is race there, mm-hmm. right? There are black Dominicans, there are white Dominicans, there are mestizo Dominicans as well. I think what this speaks to is the way in which in the U.S., Latinx is becoming a, a race in and of itself or an ethnicity in and of itself. It could be an ethnicity is not a race. They can try it, but it's just I am by the census definition Black and Hispanic because I can't check anything else. But 10 years ago, I couldn't even check Black. It was Black or Hispanic. Mm. I could not be both simultaneously. Mm. Right? So now in previously in 2020, when we were able to do the census again, we could now check Black and Hispanic, but it has gotten to the point that people are checking Black and other and writing the culture they are in said country. Mm. So I didn't even check Hispanic. I put Black Garifuna. Right. Because Hispanic in and of itself is a racist term. Mm. So we're not even doing that one. Right. And, and a recognition of, of a colonized like, category, which makes me think about, like, when we, we're talking about Latin OIX identity and how Spaniards, right, have, have taken up the term Latinx and said, oh, I'm Latinx yeah. too. And it's like, no, y'all are actually the original colonizers. Like, y'all can't sit there and be like but what's her name she's a a rapper and i'm using square quotes um rosalia one of them she's actually yeah she she was the one who was in the walk walk video yeah she's a spaniard but she's she's like i'm latina no like euro latina (laughs) no no (laughs) that doesn't that doesn't exist right but after she said that i had to google it right um, actually, they're taking up the mantle of Hispanic. And Hispanic is people descended of Spanish-speaking countries, mainly Latin America and an extension to Spain. That is a new definition that I have seen like in the last month that did wow. not exist 10 years ago right. when I was looking it up. Mm. Right? But now to say you're Latinx, but you're not from Latin America and have no history nor ties there, and your parents didn't migrate from there, just doesn't make sense to me. Hopefully we can, we can do this because it's very complicated, but hopefully we can kind of clarify race, ethnicity, nationality, which Cardi B has had trouble with, apparently. I still yeah. have trouble with it. So recognizing that it's quite complex, could you maybe, could you help us clear this up? Like, what are the differences in the overlap among an ethnicity, a race, and a nationality? I am going to try my best because it could get real, real messy. Mm-hmm. Real fast. So <laughs> in terms of like my parents, my parents' nationality are both Guatemalan. They are Guatemaltecos, born and raised, birth certificate. Their ethnicity is Garifuna, right? Their race is black, right? So when we say we are Gadifuna from Guatemala, it encompasses all of that. We don't have to do a breakdown. But your nationality is the country that you were born in what is on your birth certificate, right? Your ethnicity, if you want, it, it could go with the culture, 
some people decide to like use the country as ethnicity simultaneously. It's very weird. Your race doesn't fluctuate. Mm. You are the race where you, wherever you go. Like I, I can't say I'm a white woman when I go to Spain. <laughs> I'm black. Like I am black in Spain. I'm black in the United States. I'm black in Guatemala. Anywhere I go, I am a black woman. Now, how people see black in these certain spaces, mm -hmm. I can be, you know, una negrita, una morena. What was it when I lived in Texas? A red bone or slim thick, whatever. <laughs> but it doesn't change the fact that I'm black. Right. Right. But it's a lot of people that aren't visibly black that tend to fluctuate in between that that has to be unpacked and they have to mm -hmm. unpack that for themselves i can't unpack that for you because i am black wherever i go there is no possibility or privilege to fluctuate right right so then you have people from central america that just say oh i'm just from guatemala i was like okay so when you there are you indigenous is your grandma your mom your dad somebody indigenous because you're not black i'll tell you that one right now so it's just like, so are you coming to terms with the fact that you're white? Mm -hmm. Locate yourself there. In whiteness, if you are white, you are white. <laughs> Locate yourself yes. there. Sit with that. And I sit think, with it. Sit with it in like, you know, on an, I, I have lots of feelings about that on a spiritual level about why it's difficult for people to sit with being white. But that's, I think that's a, a whole nother podcast. It's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> But what you're saying makes me think about, at least at our school, we have the Student of Color Association that I've never been a part of because on my first day that I came to, to school and saw them at the orientation, it was two white people sitting at a table talking about Student of Color Association. So I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I'm from South Carolina. So I'm like, where I'm from is really, it's real clear, either you black or you not. And you could be not black and be a few other things. So I asked them, I was like, where are you from? And, you know, I'm some South American country. And I was like, oh, like there you are white because your your family, the way it reads is like your family probably came straight from Spain and went down there. And, you know, they mm -hmm. had strict codes about mm -hmm. the nation. So it's like you're just you're probably just European, but from a different country. But here in this space you're allowed to be a student of color. You're allowed to claim a certain type of oppression because of your nationality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what the, the ethnic category of Latino uh, X allows is this slippage, right? And so... It's a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. It's a slippery slope. And it's, it's something that I know a lot of Afro-Latina scholars are, are really thinking about and thinking with and, and like, what is it? really mean um and then also i know some people who are haitian who are like also trying to push back against this label oh i pushed back against the label every time mm -hmm. i used to irritate my spanish class <laughs> because it's just like if we're talking about afro latinos haitians are afro latinos too if we really want to go there because the definition of latin america is the geography mm -hmm. of latin base languages in these countries mm -hmm. is French not a Latin based language. Therefore, 
Haiti is as much Latin America as everyone else. It's just they're the blackest country there. So you have to try to eliminate them because you want to remove blackness from the construction of Latin America. Yeah. So Haitians are and can be considered Afro-Latino, if not more than any, anyone else. I don't disagree with you. I say I absolutely agree. I think that that is what it needs to be interrogated, right? Is the move away from blackness and how these different categories can be can be mobilized to distinguish oneself from black people. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, how do I, I'm trying to think about how to say this, but it may, yeah, like I just think about like the people that I've encountered at the university that we attend who are, it's mostly white women who identify as Latina mm-hmm. and um, like Cuban. And it's like, there's a, a very specific history here. And for you to say, my pa- my parents immigrated when Castro became leader of Cuba, which also mm-hmm. says something, right? Like your your family had enough money to leave, so that says something. Um, to Florida, and we were talking about white Floridians <laughs> earlier, <laughs> and that's when I had to realize that like I was I had to come to reckoning that like I was white, and I was just like, but they're black Cubans, so I don't mm-hmm. I don't understand, but. Let's not, I don't want to belabor this because I feel like <laughs> I could talk about this all day. But I also wanted to ask if, if any of you have listened to like Hotels by Jasmine Sullivan. No. Yeah. I live for that album. I listen to it every day. And I always skip over <laughs> um, Anderson Pack's verse and price tags. Um, oh, yeah. Where, that's- and that's like another thing that I think will help us also get back to Danny Lee, right? Um, Anderson Pack is a light-skinned black man who is featured on this song with Jasmine Sullivan, who is one of the greatest singers alive. And he says, forget it. Mama told me, put the kid in. So I did it. But that baby came out black as Samuel in Pulp Fiction. I'm light-skinned. My granddaddy Indian. You fucking with my lineage and my dividends. Which says a lot. And just that. Um, But besides the fact that he doesn't really understand like how genetics works. But like one of the things that I highlighted from that was like, it's obvious that the woman that he's rapping about is light skinned because if she weren't, he wouldn't be shocked that the baby came back Brown. Um, in addition to that, like the fact that a Brown baby fucks with his lineage speaks to how he seems to think about racial purity and like how that works. But this verse and like what we've been talking about in regards to colorism, which I think, is like the ideal black woman is actually not black at all. And like the media and images that we encounter reinforce that idea. So in regards to Danny Lee, right, she's like the ideal black woman. She's mm-hmm. not black at all. But she has certain features. She has certain features. She's she maybe she has a little crinkle in her hair and she can them little them little two C curls. <laughs> you know, you know, she can that little crinkle. Little crinkle. Darker makeup. Out of shape. Mm-hmm. And then have a black man co-sign her, which is like, you know, so it's like there's a responsibility that, you know, black men have to admit that they have in the way that they are complicit in this and how it works. But it goes back to your um, previous episode, if people remember, of the spicy Latina mm-hmm. comment of... There's a desire to still have the energy of a Black woman, but a myth 
of submission mm. that is not seen for black women, right? So it's like, you can yell at me, you can, you can do all this, but you're still going to cook, you're still going to clean. With the spicy Latina, there was like, you're still going to cater to your men because that's what they see on TV, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's weird. It's very weird. It is. It is weird. I think it's, I mean, for me, it's, it's weird, but it's also troubling because it's, and part of what it connects to my research is these ideas of like, not necessarily respectability, but this idea that black men are owed a respect and a certain type of patriarchy that black women constantly and consistently take from them. And so by being with someone who's not black, you're allowed to not just ascend socially, but you're allowed to get back some of that male power that black women, because of, because of our existence, right? We constantly take from you. So this idea that you're allowed, that you're still able to be the dominant person in the household, even if you are abusive, horrible, boring, not smart, horrible to talk to, don't really bring nothing to the table, don't pay no bills, but you can still be powerful in your domain and still be a quote unquote, a man, a real man, whatever that means. I think it's the main driver behind it. In addition to, all of the other anti-black shit that people say about black women. So mm-hmm. I think one of my questions I wanted to ask is, cause we, I mean, we, we said it throughout the episode, Latinx is, um, is contested. There's issues with Latinidad. Mm-hmm. So to what extent is anti-blackness tied up in the idea of Latinidad and Latinx identity? Okay. That's a question. Let's get down to it. First of all, I don't identify as Afro-Latina, to be quite honest. Because Afro-Latina for me is a top-down type of definition, meaning that it didn't come from people that actually live in Latin America. It came from the United States and then was theorized and put into a methodology to explain Blackness in Latin America, not that the Black people in Latin America were actually using Afro-Latino to explain their own lives, wow. right? So you have mm. Afro-descendiente, and then you have people that are just saying, I am Black from this country, not I am Afro-Latina, right? So for me, I say I'm Garifuna, period. Like there's, I don't need to say Afro-Latina because once I say I'm Garifuna, you know my culture. You know one of the three countries I'm possibly from, Right? You know the language, you know the history with that one term. So in order for me to use Afro-Latina, I feel like I am then imposing an erasure on myself, right? Because Afro-Latinidad is a recuperation of invisibility, a recuperation from genocide and from erasure, right? So when we think of Latinidad and is good sister friend Mestizaje, it exists because it's grounded in anti-blackness it's grounded in oppression of black people and their black citizens it's grounded in power against black and indigenous people and yeah thank you so much for for clarifying and as someone who has no claims or no no stakes in latinx latino latina identity it was difficult for me to understand it outside of a project of like being grounded in anti-blackness personally i think it was it was difficult for me for to like to understand it so i think you really explained it very well geographically i could be considered afro-latina like i'm not going to deny it i am black 
from a Latin American country. That's not a lie. But when you go to that country, my people have a name Mm -hmm. because there's the Gior people, which are the Caribbean descendants that came during the, the building of the canals and the building of like the different banana plantations there. There's the Garifuna people that are the black indigenous people. And then there are the Creole people that were also at some point there for a labor service. So there are different types of black people in Guatemala to to say Afro-Latino, you can literally be a range of different communities. And we're not all one community. So to think is just one thing is really a disservice to what Afro-Latinidad is really trying to do. That's great. I think that's a really great place to end. Thank you so much for coming today, Daisy, yes, and enlightening you. us and our listeners. This is fantastic. Oh, yes. Thank you all for listening. This episode was generously supported by Columbia University Life, the Office for Academic Diversity and Inclusion, the Arts and Science Graduate Council, and listeners just like you, honey. So Zora's Daughters is also being distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. And finally, we want to say a huge thank you to Daisy Guzman for joining us today. And we love hearing from you. We really appreciated the conversations we've been having with you all in the DMs over email. So head to ZorasDaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes, our bios, contact info, and ways to support the podcast. And until next time, remember, we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. 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 Bye.